0: hello i'm michael watson and this is the influence watch podcast In 2020, as the coronavirus hit and governments ordered mass lockdowns of length and scope unprecedented in American history, Congress passed the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, to help small businesses maintain their payrolls with forgivable loans. But before 2021, labor unions were not supposed to receive funds from PPP. My guest, the Freedom Foundation's Maxford Nelson, documented as many as 226 forgivable loans made under PPP totaling over $36 million that went to labor unions and related organizations. Max joins us today to discuss this and the Freedom Foundation's other work exposing government worker unions. Uh, Max, welcome back to the show. Uh, Before we begin, can you remind our listeners about what uh, you guys do over at Freedom Foundation?
1: Sure, Mike. Thanks for having me on the program. Uh, The Freedom Foundation is a nonprofit, uh, 501c3 organization. We're originally based out here in Washington State. I've been around for 30 years now. Uh, But we now have branch offices in Oregon and California and Pennsylvania and Ohio and and are expanding our work nationwide. Our our mission is to promote individual liberty, free enterprise and limited accountable government. And for the past eight years or so, our primary emphasis, uh, the primary way in which we're advancing that mission is by taking on the undue and outsized influence of government unions on our policymaking and our political process. Uh, and in practical terms, that means working with a lot of public employees, helping them understand their right to resign their union membership and stop the government from taking union dues out of their paychecks. Uh, and then it involves a, a very robust public interest litigation program to help keep unions accountable to the law and to represent those public employees that need assistance in getting the union to uh, stop taking their money. Uh, so that uh, that keeps us all very busy.
0: So, uh What were your find? You guys investigated uh, the Paycheck Protection Program and and the fact that unions and union affiliated groups that were not supposed to get PPP money got PPP money. Um, What what were kind of walk us through your your research and your findings?
1: Sure. Well, as as you mentioned, the the Paycheck Protection Program was one of the first uh, COVID relief. Uh, efforts that the federal government authorized uh, as part of the CARES Act, which was passed uh, by Congress in March 2020. Uh, And the intent of the program was to provide these forgivable loans to small businesses uh, to help them weather the the government lockdowns and the economic disruptions of the pandemic, and particularly to help them keep people employed to prevent these mass layoffs uh, from from tanking the the employment uh, situation. Uh, and the parameters for the loans were, were fairly broad. It was uh, meant to go to uh, businesses that employed fewer than 500 people, but many and most types of business enterprises were eligible for the funds. There was essentially one, one major category of nonprofit organization. 501 c 3s your traditional charitable organizations uh, were also eligible for PPP funds, but they were the only type of tax-exempt organization that qualified. Uh, well, as it turns out labor unions are 501c5 tax exempt organizations uh, and a variety of, uh, of related union organizations follow their other, other tax exempt uh, categories in in the tax code right category. they're they're not they're not
0: pub- they're not public charities the, the c5 is labor and agricultural organizations correct uh, and then like like you said there are a bunch of other not the usual you know c 456 that mm-hmm. we talk about in public policy but you know, other other categories for their building companies and credit unions and so on and so forth.
1: Exactly right. Yes. Or the apprenticeship programs or the training funds. We saw a lot of those showing up on, on our list as well. Um, so over the course of March 2021 to March, 2000, I'm sorry, March 2020 to March 2021, uh, the the type of tax-exempt organization that qualified was essentially limited to 501c3s. Now, when the Democratic Congress took over in 2021 and President Biden was inaugurated, uh, they passed the American Rescue Plan, the, the what was it, I think by then, the third multi-trillion dollar COVID relief. Yeah, package.
0: Some, some, something like uh, that, yeah. <laughs> some ungodly
1: yeah. amount of money. And at that point, being that Democrats wrote the package, uh, unions became eligible beginning in March 2021, for the extended PPP program, so our analysis was limited to that one-year period uh, where unions were, were not eligible. Yeah, strict, strictly, uh,
0: strictly the period when, and they were not made like backwardly compatible.
1: Correct, correct. Yeah. Uh, well, and the funds were part part of it went you. They expanded the category of eligibility to include unions, and then they added more funds into the program mm-hmm. and said, now you can go out and, and you can get these mm-hmm. loans. And quite a few unions did after, after they formally became eligible. But we identified a, a long slog through the $12 million or so uh, 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 Paycheck Protection Program loans that were made over the course of this first year. And we identified these 226 loans uh, that were made to labor organizations themselves or to affiliated entities or funds that unions operated uh, that were not 501c3s, that were some other type of tax-exempt organization that were explicitly ineligible for receiving the funds. And and yet, for some reason, they received $37 million in taxpayer funds, the vast majority of which uh, uh, were forgiven. And uh, apparently there was a total systems breakdown uh, in the process of reviewing and, uh, and approving these loans.
0: So, why, why? I mean, why does this matter? You know, $37 million, yeah, it sounds like a lot of money. I mean, objectively, it is a lot of money. I would like to have $37 million. Not. <laughs> um, but in terms of government spending, I mean, it's— in in the time it's taking me to outline this question, I suspect the United States government will have spent thirty seven million dollars. Um, Correct. You know why, why? should our why? Why should why should people, why should people care? It just seems like you know why? Why shouldn't they just dismiss this as an oversight?
1: Well, it I think an oversight is going to be putting it very charitably. Uh, the Small Business Administration uh, has already been dinged quite a few times by its own Inspector General for failing to put in place proper controls. Uh, to make sure that only eligible entities were receiving PPP funds. So we've we've identified one example uh, of a larger problem uh, that involved the, the administration of the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, labor unions are particularly the, the types of unions that we were identifying as, as getting these loans uh, tend to be very active politically. Uh, They tend to be very uh, engaged in the public policy process. So, for example, we identified about a dozen teachers unions that were receiving funds through the program that they were not eligible for, while at the same time advocating for the types of strict lockdown policies. uh, So they, so, so they they
0: they weren't paying the consequence, you know, they weren't dealing with the consequences of the policies they were advocating for.
1: Correct. They were benefiting from the consequences of policies that they were advocating for uh, in, in a number of ways. This being just one one example. Uh, so I, this this resulted, I think, at some level indisputably in taxpayer funding of union political advocacy, unions, um, policy work and lobbying. Uh, it probably helped keep go, go to finance efforts to keep our schools closed uh, and, and to keep the country locked down and, and so forth. Uh, but you start looking at some of the organizations that got funds uh AFL-CIO entities for example in in addition to teachers mm-hmm. unions uh, showed up quite a bit well the AFL-CIO is essentially a union for unions you know it does not represent workers it represents like a trade association would Yeah the it's, yeah, it's the union. it's
0: one of the it's one yeah. of the two big associations for unions
1: Right but yeah you know, we saw uh, you know that, so that being said they tend to be more on the political advocacy side of things because they don't have workplace representation obligations that traditionally you know you yeah
0: they're not, they're not they're not uh, they the the Liz Shuler is not going around to workplaces yeah. <laughs> sitting down in a room with you know a business you know with a business representative you know hammering right. out should the wage rate be you know 1075 or 1163
1: an hour <laughs> Exactly right, um, but nonetheless, Pennsylvania AFL-CIO, statewide AFL-CIO, got a quarter million dollars. You know, the Alaska AFL-CIO got sixty-three thousand dollars, and so on down the list. So, um, there, there really is no policy justification for it. Uh, there, there certainly was no legal justification for it. Uh, but the responsibility here is, is interesting as well. The 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 breakdown doesn't just rest on the shoulders of the Small Business Administration. Admittedly, this was a massive program that was created essentially overnight, and the SBA, you know, by federal government terms, is not a particularly large agency. Uh, so the way the program was structured, uh, the SBA contracted with a network of about 5,000, 6,000 private financial institutions, banks, and credit unions, and so on around mm-hmm. the country to actually review and approve these loans, but the SBA de- de- uh, developed all of the application paperwork that was to be used in the process. So the, the applications themselves that were submitted by these unions are not held by the federal government. They're held by these private financial institutions. So I, I can't get them. I can't FOIA them. I can't go you know, demand that I, that I inspect these, uh, which is an interesting uh, shortcoming. But reviewing the, the paperwork, the application paperwork uh, that the SBA developed and that these unions must have submitted, uh, it becomes very clear that there's a high, high likelihood – that some of the statements and attestations that that needed to be made on those forms were fraudulent, uh, or or whether knowingly or not, uh, at minimum, the applicant was supposed to uh, testify that they were in uh, compliance with the eligibility rules in effect at the time. That certainly was false, as in the case of these labor unions, Uh, and the very beginning section of the form contained a series of check boxes for all the different types of entities that were eligible uh, for these funds and asked the applicant, check the right box. Yeah,
0: it's sort of your turbo tax, you know, are you eligible for this I, tax credit? You have to say, yes, 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 I, I have actually <laughs> have these children, these are their Social Security numbers, so on and so forth.
1: <laughs> correct. Exactly right. So some very interesting questions about what the unions were thinking, what they actually put on these forms. If they completed the forms uh, the way they should have, uh, then they should never have gotten these loans. And, and if they didn't complete the forms the way they should have, uh, then there's potentially, you know, the... Uh, criminal penalties involved uh, if the federal authorities take the initiative and actually investigate and do what they say they're going to do. Uh, so we have submitted our findings to the Department of Justice, uh, which has a National Center on Disaster Fraud, which is allegedly looks into exactly situations like this, uh, and then also to the uh, Inspector General at the Small Business Administration, which, as I mentioned, has already come out with some other reports documenting other ways in which the SBA mishandled the, uh, the PPP.
0: I guess. I mean, I guess you probably wouldn't hold your breath that the President Justice Department would uh, t- would take note of these particular um, this particular alleged uh, alleged misconduct. But, um, well so, one one note
1: on one note on that though, I, I will I, I agree. I'm certainly not holding my breath for any particular outcome uh, from the Department of Justice. But I have to note since since the subject came up uh, that none other than the President himself made a point in his State of the Union address recently. Uh, of stating his intention to have the Department of Justice go after COVID fraud, COVID-related fraud in government programs. Uh, So, like I said, I'm not going to hold my breath that it's going to happen. But if it doesn't happen, then that's an indication that uh, the administration simply doesn't want to go after its political allies. Uh, The evidence here is very clear, and it's been provided to the government. So if they choose not to act on it, uh, despite their alleged intent to do so, then
0: that's
1: screams political
0: favoritism. It's it's on, it's on, it's on them and we can only guess why. Um, so, uh, what else are you guys, I mean, uh, obviously organized labor, especially government worker unions are a big part of what you guys do over at Freedom Foundation. Uh, what are some of the other issues, uh, that are going on right now that you guys are taking, uh, taking action against? Well,
1: we, uh, you know, we're engaged with government unions on a variety of fronts. One of the most interesting on the legal side of things uh, that, that's cropped up uh, in the last year or so uh, has been public employees who are having you know, coming to us with uh, documentation that their union has forged their signatures on union membership forms. Uh, and this goes back to the Supreme Court's decision in 2018 in the Janice versus Ask Me decision. Which ended mandatory dues and fee yeah, payments. Yeah, it, it essentially
0: made the entire government sector right to work.
1: Exactly right. Uh, and so, what we've seen unions do in response to that that loss of com- that that ability under state law to compel payment uh, is they've resorted to a, a series of lesser uh, coercive mechanisms, which they hope will cumulat- cumulatively have roughly the same effect and, and continue Evade, to-
0: evading the spirit, if not the letter, of the decision.
1: Exactly right, and and I think the most extreme example that we've come across is is this series of forgeries uh, that continues to grow in length. We have uh, no less than thirteen federal lawsuits now that involve government unions forging their uh, you know the, the signatures of public employees they represent on these, these union membership forms, uh, and and part of the problem here, part of the enabling uh, uh, of this of this practice. And part of the reason I think it's, it's as widespread as it is, uh, is that the, the state governments in many union aligned states like Washington or California, Illinois, uh, New York, and so on, they all responded to Janus by passing legislation in, that was very similar to each other. And essentially it handed over control of the, of the dues deduction process, which the government administers. Again, these, mm-hmm. these dues are being withheld by a payroll deduction like taxes. Uh, but it handed over control of, of that process to the unions and said the, the state, the school district, the city has to deduct dues from whomever the union tells it to and can only mm-hmm. stop withholding dues if the union says it's okay. So now the employee has to, to navigate so, so rather, so rather to than the the rather
0: than the government rather than the government employer having a list of like these are all the union members in the in the let's say school district uh, who, for whom dues must be withheld. It's the union says you must withhold from all of these people.
1: Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. So at that point, the government, there is no oversight. There's no process in place to ensure that
0: the government doesn't have, the government doesn't have to actually check the cards that say, I, you know, state your name. I'm a member of uh, let's say, the Service Employees International Union with, Correct. Uh, you know, with all the, you know, rights and responsibilities to pertaining, including payment of dues.
1: Correct. Correct. Exactly. There, yeah. In these states, like that I mentioned, again, generally all of these blue left of center states. Yeah. The, the union, the entity with the financial interest in receiving the money controls the entire process. Uh, and it leads to, as apparently we're discovering these crazy situations where people are finding out that, you know, dues, dues are being withheld from their wages. And, you know, usually the, the way that they find out that this is even a problem is they try to opt out. They try mm-hmm. to cancel their dues deductions. And the union, one of the other tactics unions have, have adopted, is imposing strict window period limitations on when... Right.
0: You can you can only for withdraw for one week in, you know, the second week of July in every <laughs> third year or something.
1: It, it can get that absurd. It really can. So, so an employee will try to cancel the deductions, uh, and they'll submit the request, and the union will get back to them and say, "Well, you signed this card, and under the terms of the card that you signed, you can only get out yeah on the third weekend every uh, yeah. you know other year uh, if the full moon is, is showing." And that that jogs their memory. You know, they don't remember ever signing anything. Mm-hmm. You were signing up for union membership, and so then you know you get into this. Yeah, back then they, and then, forth. They, then
0: they want to see the physical. Document that they signed, and
1: correct, correct. At least and, in and a couple it, of, at
0: least in a couple of your lawsuits, the the uh, the plaintiff has, has attested that that's not my signature. Mm-hmm. Well, and, it,
1: and in some cases, it is surprisingly obvious. You put the two signature, the actual signature, together with the with the alleged signature, and it's very clear that these were signed by two different people. Uh, and so the facts in some of these cases are just insane. Uh, so, and and again, the more we Publicize it. The more we know to look for it, uh, the more people we interact with. The more of these cases we identify, it's you know the first one that we came across was with a, a home care worker out of Spokane, and uh, you know we're we're not unfamiliar with union mm-hmm. tactics or union shenanigans, but we were still shocked that they would be that brazen. And now we're up to thirteen of these cases. So mm-hmm. uh, it's <laughs> it really shocks the uh, the conscience uh, to oh,
0: and, uh, and, and, realize. And... It. Moving in a slightly different direction as far as evading uh, Janus rights goes, you guys just uh, jumped in a lawsuit in Ohio on unions seizing vacation time from people who have Janused themselves out of the union.
1: <laughs> Correct. Fascinating situation in Ohio. Absolutely. Um, well, the the city of Cincinnati had uh, no longer compelled dues payment of of its employees in accordance with the Janus decision. Um, but we were contacted by some non-members there who had successfully resigned their membership in, in the local AFSCME affiliate, uh, but who were having deductions from their vacation hours uh, to be put towards a, a bank of time uh, that union officials could use to engage in union advocacy on the clock. So the union president, for instance, uh, would be able to say to use this bank of pooled time deducted from all these employees' vacation hours, uh, to go lobby state legislature, to go uh, do contract go to
0: city go to city council protests.
1: Right, exactly. Now the union president is a public employee. He's being paid with public dollars, uh, and he's his ability to go out and do that union advocacy on work time was being funded essentially by these deductions these vacation hour deductions, which applied to everybody in the workplace, not just members of the union, but non-members as well. So we filed federal litigation along with the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation against the city, arguing that this this is unconstitutional. You may not be taking money from the paycheck of these non-members. Right, but
0: the vacation time
1: time isn't free. Correct. It isn't
0: free to to the government employee. That's compensation in lieu of money.
1: (laughs) Exactly right. Yeah, there is no meaningful distinction there. Uh, when it comes to the First Amendment's uh, protections acknowledged by the court under Janice. so we'll we'll see where that goes. It's an interesting uh, kind of a unique case. Uh, we are aware of this practice occurring elsewhere, uh, but as you mentioned, there is no distinction. It's part of the compensation, and it's being taken from these non-members against their will uh, to fund union advocacy, and it, it absolutely should not be happening.
0: And then, uh, so. I know there's been some coverage of the possibility that congressional staffs will be able to unionize. Um, uh-huh. But uh, you guys out on the Pacific Northwest are in an even more ridiculous situation, in <laughs> my understanding, uh, with your state legislative staffs possibly unionizing and possibly unionizing on block. Meaning that the Democrat, the majority Democrats, would be able to negotiate on behalf of the Republicans, who would all have to janus themselves out of the union to not pay dues to unelect their bosses.
1: Well, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because that's been a very hot topic out here in Washington State this year, and in Oregon uh, continues to be. Uh, so there is there is very little precedent for the unionization of legislative staff. Uh, Maine uh, legislators authorized collective bargaining by their uh, nonpartisan administrative staff back in 2007, I believe it was. Uh, and so they, they've been SEIU represented for a few years. Uh, but then Oregon, these aren't,
0: these aren't the, these aren't the, the people who help this legislator write legislation and communicate with constituents and do the other official business of being a state legislator. These are like the parliamentarians.
1: Uh, I believe that's correct. Yes. Or yeah, the administrative support. I don't know. I don't know. If, I, don't know are, spe-
0: I don't know if specific. I don't know if it's specifically the parliamentarian, but the people who like, <laughs> run the bu- the people who run the building.
1: Correct. Yes, yes that's correct. Uh, now, Oregon, uh, the legislature did not exempt their staff from the existing public employee collective bargaining statute. So there was an effort made, a successful effort to unionize the legislative assistants that do work directly in the offices of Uh, the elected members of the legislature there, Uh, and because Oregon has a a strong Democratic majority in both the House and the Senate, the union vote, uh, which certified the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, uh, go figure, uh, as as his representative, uh, was was successful, even though most GOP staff did not want to be unionized. They were included in this single bargaining unit uh, that the State Employment Relations Board certified. Uh, and so they're they're stuck now in this kind of between a rock and a hard place. They can either join and pay dues to this union, which tends to be partisan and tends to be aligned with the Democrats um, and and gain a voice in their working conditions or they resign or they yeah, don't or, join or and for, or forfeit ever. it
0: and Janice themselves out.
1: Correct. At which point they no longer have the ability to control or have a say in uh, the policies governing their employment and, and their workplace. So we're, we're representing uh an employee, a, a, an employee, and a, a lawmaker in litigation uh, challenging uh, that uh, collective bargaining arrangement in Oregon state courts uh, on the basis of separation of powers. Essentially, it's the executive agency, the Employment Relations Board, is now telling the legislature how to run uh, its its operations, its internal mm-hmm. operations. Uh, and we did get an, an initial victory in that case last week. Uh, the Uh, Opposing side tried to get it thrown out on a standing issue and the court rejected that. So now we get to proceed to the actual uh, legal merits and get to the court question. Uh, But this issue is playing out here in Washington state as well. Uh, The legislature this year uh, has been debating a a proposal that would allow unionization explicitly by legislative staff. Uh, They have been exempted in the past from our our collective bargaining laws. And we're getting right down to the wire. We've only got uh, two days left of the legislative session. The House has now passed a bill. Uh, and the Senate is considering how to move forward with it. But it's, it's been very interesting to watch uh, because, of course, the bill is being pushed by legislative Democrats uh, and being supported by unions. Uh, and initially, the, the legislation did not proceed. It missed a key cutoff deadline and, and was considered dead for the year, which ignited this huge firestorm among the Democratic staffers who, who all, went out on, not on a strike, but they had a, a sick out day. Yeah, they, they, they,
0: had, they, they, were, they engaged in industrial action.
1: Correct. And a work stoppage. Uh, And they took the uh, legislative Democrat leadership took a ton of flack from progressive press and progressive activists out here for not living their values. Uh, Very entertaining to watch, actually. And so suddenly uh, they they bent the rules a little bit and resurrected a a watered down version of the legislation, which is what the Senate is considering now. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, Freedom Foundation hasn't officially taken a position on the bill. Uh, but it really puts the Democratic leadership in a tough spot. I mean, if they do act on this and allow for unionization, they have to deal themselves with the implications of collective bargaining and 80 page collective bargaining agreements. And there is no doubt that that is going to slow down their ability to churn out progressive legislation. It just will. Yeah. It'll, it'll suck up time and energy that otherwise would have been spent on. Other probably objectionable yeah, doing, things.
0: Do, doing 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 the jobs of Democratic legislators in a state legislature that they control, <laughs> <laughs>
1: correct. Uh, so I think the biggest concern is is trying to prevent those Republican staffers from having to be sucked in and represented by uh, an organization that is directly hostile to their to the members that they work for. Uh, that that certainly well, to the, and, and
0: to the and to their very to their very employment. Correct. In all, yes. In all practical. In all practical understanding of that term
1: <laughs> C- correct now the dynamic in Congress is a little bit different the the rules in place uh, since the 1990s have uh, carved the the congressional offices apart so organizing there would have to happen in individual lawmakers offices or on individual committees uh, and Congress is a much bigger institution of course than our, our state legislative offices you know there's maybe one or two people <laughs> uh, right, employed right. in a given yes, yes. senator's office here uh, and that's not really uh, an arrangement that would fit for collective bargaining. So they they want to cast a broader net and loop all of the mm-hmm. legislative aides in under the same uh, collective bargaining unit, just for for scale reasons. But uh, but in Congress, yeah, the dynamic would be uh, would be a little bit different. Although again, that puts the Democrats in the same very awkward position. You could have only Democrat offices mm-hmm. unionizing, which would put them at a bit of a competitive advantage with their Republican counterparts.
0: Yeah, you you mean you mean disadvantage.
1: Uh, yes, I'm sorry, competitive disadvantage, yes, with their uh, Republican counterpart.
0: Well, before we let you go, are there any other issues you guys over at Freedom Foundation are working on that our listeners need to know about?
1: Well, we uh, we do tend to keep pretty busy over here. But, I mean, the main things are, are kind of the areas that we've discussed, making sure that unions are abiding by whatever laws uh, are applicable to them and uh, making sure that public employees are aware of their rights and then filing litigation when necessary to keep uh, – keep unions feet to the fire and make sure that the public employees' rights aren't being trampled in the process. So there's always some uh, interesting twist in that uh, in that drama and, and a lot of things that uh, that surprise even us. But uh, that's I think that covers what we're up to pretty well.
0: Well, we wish you the greatest of success. Uh, thank you again, Max Nelson of the Freedom Foundation, for joining us. We will include links to his and his colleagues' work exposing the actions of government worker labor unions in today's show notes. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you, and please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week.